6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of Colossians, chapter 2, verses 1 through 17. He, the plan he was following was laid out before the foundation of the world. And so once you understand who Jesus Christ is, he then, of course, authenticates the whole package. And that's the close of the loop, if you will. Uh, that's, that's the model. That's bulletproof. You can establish the integrity of design. There it is. Lay it out. And that clearly emerges. Every detail of Christ's life is genealogy. The whole, it goes on and on and on, hundreds of details. And once you describe who he did, and you, and you suddenly realize who he is, he then establishes the rest. Who wrote the, the, who wrote the Torah? Moses. How do I know? Christ said so half a dozen times. Quotes from each of the books. And so on. So anyway, okay, epistemology, study of knowledge, its scope and its limits. And the study of epistemology in college is a waste of time, because it's usually conducted by the philosophy department, and it's just a study of the history of words, rather than any methods and so forth. And uh, I want, when in, in the Institute, we have the Berean challenge, which is the study of the Bible. The second level is the, uh, what we call the Issachar challenges, okay? Now, it's interesting what we've discovered by this. The, message, the, the methods are totally different. When you're studying the Bible, you know it's true. The challenge is how do you, under, how do you uh, uh, understand it? In the Issachar challenge, you're studying news reports, intelligence reports, information that has bias and deliberate agendas and so forth. Your challenge there, your tools are just the opposite. They're inferential, inductive. The, the tools of a detective. The tools of the brain thing is like a, 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 a apologetics is like a trial lawyer defending a view before a jury. The tools of the Issachar is just the opposite. A whole different set of tools, and you don't get those tools in college. But you, so, and of course, uh, so the Berean plus the Issachar together makes up a program to lead to the the doing. We call it the Koinos track. That's the practical shoe leather to pavement kind of thing, and uh, the uh, we the, it's motivated by the third commandment: Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Which we argue has nothing to do with vocabulary. It has to do with ambassadorship. And if you're going to take the name of the king, you better be prepared to represent him faithfully and competently. So that's the, that's the structure behind the Iskar. But it gets to this whole issue of tools and methods. But it has fascinated me for most of my profession. My professional background is in the information sciences. And it fascinates me how over uh, the last several decades, the information sciences are at the root of all the other sciences, whether it's quantum physics, the DNA, the nature of light, you name it. They're information issues. Uh, rather than the traditional ones. And we also can be, we have experienced the bankruptcy of value relativism. Alan Bloom was shocked to find himself on the cover of news magazines when he published his 30 Years from Columbia in a book called The, Amer the Closing of the American Mind. How our rejection of, of uh, the, re the reality of truth has totally bankrupt intellectually our universities. You can't find truth if you deny its existence. And that's the whole quest of learning in general, and science in particular, was the search for truth. And we live in a culture that denies that truth exists. It's all relative. You have your truth, I have mine. 
That means that our young people can just disregard all of history. Why study it? And so forth. Okay. The great books of the Western world, all that sort of thing. So in any case, there are two great systems when Paul wrote the letter to Colossians that are still contending over the minds of the Western world. One of them is Stoicism. Live nobly, and death cannot matter. Hold appetite in check. Become indifferent to changing conditions. Stoicism. Be not lifted up by good fortune or cast down by adversity. Man is more than circumstances. The soul is greater than the universe. That's the stoical perspective. The other system is Epicureanism. All is uncertain. We know not whence we come or whither we go. We only know that after a brief life we disappear from the scene. It is vain to deny ourselves or any present joy in view of possible future ill. Let us eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. Then we wonder why we have Columbine High School or some of these bizarre uh, uh, expressions of futility out of our young people. And so these two systems. See, Paul is saying, beware lest any man make a prey of you or, or, or carry you captive. See, the Scripture nowhere condemns the acquisition of knowledge. That's not the point. The Christian may very properly avail himself of legitimate means of becoming better acquainted with the great facts of history, the findings of true science, or the beauties of literature. Don't, be a, don't close those things off. Just be on your guard that they don't destroy your grasp and, and awareness of the real truth. And understand that contemporary science today is not the pursuit of truth, tragically. It's the attempt to explain the observations of the physical universe while denying the existence of a creator. One of the most bizarre episodes is the debate over intelligence and design. That's astonishing that that's even a debate. It's an intense debate. I was at the Rand Corporation back in the early 50s, and we published a book, which was a milestone in those days, called A Million Random Digits in 1955. And to the average person, you laugh at that. You open this book, and it's full of random numbers. Isn't that stupid? No. It turns out that's very difficult to find. If you truly ran anything that you develop has an algorithm makes it not random. How do you get real random numbers? What they did was, using the best computers and the most advanced techniques, they examined those million digits to make sure there was no symmetry, no repeatability, no patterns. They washed it on computers to make sure they were truly unpredictable. That's what a random number is supposed to be. What's interesting about that experience, the reason I go through the trouble explaining that, Random, what they did was they made sure there was no design among the random numbers. It was truly random. Randomness, in information theory, randomness is the opposite of design. And we live in a culture where our kids in school are forced to learn that uh, these elegant designs that we're just beginning to understand happen by accident, by randomness. We've invented the most insulting god of all. The pagans used to worship wood, stay, wood and stone and stuff. We've invented a more insulting God of all. Nothingness. There was no creator required. It all just happened by accident. Which, of course, is the, the ultimate absurdity. In, in the very definitions of the information science, very definitions of, of science itself. And yet that's what we are forcing on our young people. Evolution isn't the only myth. There's, a lot, there's others. So as a Christian can properly ch ch uh, chase and absorb knowledge, of course, but let the Christian never put human wisdom in the place of divine revelation. That's what distinguishes us. Because God cares. He has revealed himself. He's gone to great lengths to reveal himself. And the first armament, if you study Ephesians 6, the armor of God, the first one is to gird yourself with truth. Everything else hangs on that. Just like the girding the belt. Everything hung on it. Well, 
truth, truth is the backbone of your thing. It's the wisdom of this world, not its knowledge, that is foolishness with God. And I used to love this. Walter Martin had some fabulous messages on the ultimate oxymoron. The foolishness of God. You can't, you take that phrase, that's absurd. How can you speak of the foolishness of God from 1 Corinthians 1? There are some examples. Noah and his barge. God decides to wipe out the whole world and save eight people. So he has them build this boat, spends 120 years uh, in, having this thing in his driveway. I mean, the whole story is in its way. It's, it's, it's crazy. It's foolish. You know, go through the whole Bible. It seems God goes out of his way to do things in a weird way. The foolish of God. Moses and the brazen serpent. I just went through that one. Okay. Samson and the jawbone. You know, uh, uh, crazy, crazy. Elisha and Naaman, this, uh, the, the, the uh, Syrian general, dip yourself seven times in the, this muddy river and you'll get rid of your leprosy, but he does and he does, of course. And Jonah and the fish story, what a bizarre, it, it's, it's almost as if God goes out of his way to do things weird. What we, we, we would regard, you think it would be a more direct, appropriate way to solve some of these problems. And what's the ultimate foolishness? The ultimate foolishness. Of all these things, what's the most ultimate foolish? The cross. The cross. Paul says, for the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. Indeed. Crazy that the entire universe is going to be measured by the events of a wooden cross erected in Judea some 2,000 years ago. Everything in the universe is going to be measured from that event. The preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. Interesting thing about this verse, there are only two conditions. There are only two parts. You're either them that perish or them that are saved. This is one of the many verses that splits it right in two. Only two categories. So Christ is the antidote for human philosophy, for Jewish legalism, for oriental mysticism, or carnal asceticism. Christ is the answer. For in Him, in Christ, dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. That's got to be one of the most challenging theological assertions you can find in any literature. That in Christ, in Him, dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In His body. You know, it's interesting, your, your, your first uh, astonishment as you study your Bible is that God became man and dwelt among us. And you really, it takes a while to grab that and understand that. But then as you mature and you realize what the righteousness of God really means, and what the sinfulness of man really means, and the gulf that's between those two, the more astonishing thing is that as we meet here right now, there's a man sitting on the throne. Wow. The throne-crowned one is there right now. Staggering, staggering, staggering. And will be forever. He didn't become a man for 33, years, 33 and a half years. He is a man today. That incarnation was forever. In him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. All you can say is wow as you understand that. The word uh, pleroma, it's the sum of the qualities of deity. The sum of everything that you mean by deity is what that is intended to embrace. And Jesus said, he that hath seen me hath seen the Father. 
It's a word, by the way, the Gnostics love to use, that fullness. And so, so Paul is feeding a, that word right back to them. They, and ye, ye are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. Wow, you're complete in him. There's two steps here. The staggering thing that everything is in him. Great, okay. And that you are complete in him. The, the, commun the, the communion there, the organic union that's implied, in, incredible there. You're complete in him. That's staggering. We can't get our minds around that. That takes real, some real thought and study. You're filled to the full is what it means. We are accepted in the beloved, Ephesians says. Dr. Kenneth West's expanded translation says, And you are in him, having been completely filled, full with the present result that you are in a state of fullness. Boy, that says it all. Now let's get back to the psychology thing. You know, we live in a, in a, in a world of psychology. You know, uh, the best thing that psychology, one of the most corrosive impacts on the human psyche is guilt. And all psychology can do is deny the guilt. Get rid of the guilt. They can't get rid of the cause of the guilt. All they can do is treat the symptom. They don't have a remedy for the primary dynamic in the, of the human predicament. The primary dynamic of the human predicament is sin. That's what leads to guilt. The best that psychology can do is try to nip off the guilt somehow. Divert, hide, deny, whatever. What can the psychologist do about sin? The fact that we're sinners. He can't do anything about that except deny it, in a sense. Let's talk a little bit about architecture. See, the, I'm going to suggest to you, I'll give you the conclusion I'm going to head to. Psychology is doomed because it's trying to determine your internal architecture from your external behavior. Let's talk about your personal architecture, okay? You know, seven times in the Bible, it's, the Scripture says, ye are the temple of God. Seven times that says that specifically. That might be just a rhetorical idiom. I don't happen to think so, but it might be. I believe it holds the key to our software architecture. Now, we use the word heart. We don't mean the thing that pumps our blood. It means something else to us, doesn't it? When we say, boy, he really has heart. Uh, the word soul, the word spirit. How are those different? We use those sloppily. Even if we're fairly well-trained biblically, we tend to be sloppy in the use of those terms. There, my wife spent 35 years studying every place, every one of those words appear in both the Old and New Testament. And you begin to realize that it's, you, it's speaking of some very specific things. Different than you might... We, we think mind, we think a brain. No, no. Your mind is not just in your brain. It's much more complex than that. So you've got uh, soul, spirit, mind, heart... Let's talk about system architecture. Typically, if you have some software in a computer, you can't, first of all, you can't determine the software by x-raying the computer. These young guys around here could, let's assume, know about every wire, every part in that, heart, in that computer. They know everything about the hardware. Could they tell you anything about its behavior? No. Why? Because its behavior is determined by the software that's in there. Okay, the hardware is simply a place of residence of that software. Okay, can they determine how the software is designed by x-raying the computer? Of course not. 
Well, what does a software look like? You've got a kernel of some kind, and around that you wrap system resources of getting in and getting out and other things, a whole system of things, and you put that whole thing in a package so it has a certain presentation to you as a user. And you can't get in there very easily to find out how it's made, because that's why you can have a software industry. You can, go to, you can go down to the store, to a, a computer store, and buy someone's software, and you can use it, but you can't unravel it to see how it's organized generally. There's some exceptions, but that's the, that's, the, that's the problem. And so you wrap the application around with the user interface, and you put that whole thing inside a hardware environment. Now, can you, from the, by looking at the hardware performances, understand how the internal design works? Not really. You can make some guesses, but you're guessing. See, that's the problem that the, soft, the psychologist has. Because he can only deal with your behavior, your external behavior, and he's got to somehow infer how you're organized. The only way you can do that is get the owner's manual, the designer's manual. And that's our, we call it the Bible, okay? The doom of psychology. A programmable, programmable computer is, by definition in the theory of automata, an infinite state machine. It falls into that mathematical category. An infinite state machine defies external determination of its internal architecture. You can't, because it's, in, it's an infinite state machine. And its behavior can be accomplished by lots of different alternative paths. You can't exhaust them, because it's an infinite state machine. The frustration of psychology is that it is attempting to determine internal architecture from external behavior. So psychology as a field of study is doomed in solving the primary predicament of man, the issue of sin. Now, I have a little helpful diagram here. Here's some hardware that represents man. It's good. Man's simple. He's got an on and off switch, right? A woman's another matter. <laughs> there are lots of guys here that are giving me knowing nods, right? <laughs> I had to throw that in just a See, part of the problem is I can't really see you. I can see the temporary resident that you are in. See, in, in architecture, we hardware, we have microcircuits, memory, wires, resistors, whatever else. The software in the computer, user interface, internal interfaces, machine language, algorithms, all these software things. Well, let's talk about us, our physical body. Our physical body has flesh, bones, circulatory system, you name it, right? Ourselves, the real self, is res it resides in there. The soul, spirit, mind, whatever you might want to call it. That's software, not hardware, is my point. Okay? I want to talk a little bit about software. The mass of software. It turns out, if I have one of these little diskettes, I have to revise the slide from time to time because technology is changing so fast, but you all remember what the little diskettes were before we had thumb drives and things. Okay. If I take one of these little diskettes and I put it, I take a blank cassette, and I put it on a postal scale. It weighs about seven-tenths of an ounce, okay? Now I spend hundreds of dollars and load that diskette with a million bytes of software, right? And put it on that same scale. What does it weigh? Seven-tenths of an ounce. What's my point? Software has no mass. A light switch, if it's at a one or a zero, doesn't weigh any different. Software has no mass. In fact, I can send software through the airwaves. Do it all the time. Software has no mass. See, the real you is software, not hardware. The real you has no mass because it's software. 
You're in a temporary hardware environment right now with bones and flesh and all that. But that's uh, consumable. Thanks to uh, Michael Crichton's uh, novel, The Jurassic Park, we discover that you can, you can create an entire creature by just having a code. It's called DNA, right? There's ways to transmit it. The elements that you're made of are fungible. Carbon atoms, hydrogen. You can get those anywhere. The trick is to put them together in the right way. All God needs to do to resurrect you is to have your DNA. And maybe a little bit more, but it's information. Okay? But you have no mass. Now that means something. In, and um, that means you are not restricted to a time dimension. You are eternal whether you are saved or not. That's the staggering discovery of what I'm pointing out to you. Okay? You are eternal whether you're saved or not. The question is, where are you going to spend it? And if you're perfect without blemish, you can spend it with God. Whoops. Huh? Walter Martin used to say there's two paths to heaven. You know, uh, one path is to never make a mistake from the time you're born, be absolutely perfect, absolutely sinless, and then when you die, you just go right up to heaven and say to God, move over, it's to us. And he's being, of course, irreverent, but he makes the point. The other way, of course, is by God having taken care of the issue with our redemption. So it's interesting, see, uh, we're, if we're in a timeline, and there's uh, them behind us, and there's us, and uh, there was a guy that got out of time and came into the time domain and paid the price for all of us. And uh, that, of course, is our Lord Jesus Christ, what happened at the cross. Paid for it. Done. All your sins were yet future back then. He paid for them all. Outside time. Now, let's go back to psychology a little bit. The problem with Adam and Eve is that they came from a dysfunctional family. <laughs> I don't think so. Was that Satan's problem also? Did he come from a dysfunctional family? Isn't it tragic that Paul did not have the insights of modern psychology when he counseled Timothy? When you read the Timothy letters? And the other question is, if you're filled full, as the Scripture says, why doesn't it show? Ooh. Holy Spirit dwells in you? How, why can't we tell? There's something throttling that, isn't there? If you have the love of God within us, why do we behave the way we do? Because we make faith choices. We fail to make faith choices. And this is the miracle of my wife's book, The Way of Agape, because it deals with this issue in practical terms that's changed lives throughout the world. And so I invite you to take a look at that. But let's get back to our text. I've gotten a little sidetrack here. Colossians verse 11, 2 verse 11. In whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. He's using the term because he's refuting the, the Jewish use of that term, the word circumcision. Circumcision made without hands. It's interesting, God never separates the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Circumcision in the past, in Genesis 17 elsewhere, was a sign of the covenant, is what that was. It was a physical emblem with a spiritual significance. And as, as so often happens, the physical sign tends to replace the actuality. It was a covenant sign back in Genesis 17 and following. But it's become a different kind of idiom here in the days of the Colossians. We're going to deal with that as we get into the Kabbalah and all of that. And so God warned them about this all the way through the, the Torah. Deuteronomy 10, 30, Jeremiah 4, elsewhere. And people, even non-Jewish people, make the same mistake today 
when they rely on any ritual to save them. And baptism doesn't save you. That doesn't mean it's not a worthwhile testimony and witness, but don't get confused about that. You don't wash away your sins with baptismal water. Christ's blood washes away the sin. And it's tragic that many well-intended people make that mistake. There is a contrast between Jewish circumcision and the believer's spiritual circumcision uh, in Christ, in the Jews and believers. In the Jews, it's external surgery, obviously. In believers, it's internal. It's a circumcision of the heart, is what both Jeremiah as well as New Testament terms. In Jews, it's only part of the body, obviously. In believers, it's the whole body of our sins that's at issue here. In Jews, it's done by hands. Believers are done without hands. That's exactly the term that Paul is using here in Colossians. And among the Jews, no spiritual help in conquering sin. You don't conquer sin because you happen to be born in a Jewish hospital. Okay? And uh, so, and of course, in believers, the circumcision Paul's talking about enables them to overcome sin because you have the Holy Spirit to draw upon. When Jesus died and rose again, he won a complete and final victory over sin. That's why I prefer the empty tomb as an image of our faith than I do the crucifixion on a cross because that didn't finish, that, that won the victory. But we celebrate a risen Lord, not a crucified Lord. And uh, so, what the law could not do, Jesus Christ accomplished for us. The old nature, the body of the sins in the flesh, to use his term, was put off, rendered inoperative, so that we need no longer be enslaved to its desires. That's astonishing, but clearly true and demonstrable. The old sinful nature is not eradicated, for we can still sin. The guy isn't a horse thief because he stole a horse. He stole the horse because he's a horse thief, right? No, we still can sin. But its power has been broken as we yield to Christ and walk in the power of the Spirit. And that's the challenge of the Christian walk, is to learn to make faith choices. Not how you feel, but what the... And then, discover, and then to discover that God will realign your feelings to that choice. But it won't be instantaneous. You make the faith decision, the choice, and God will align things properly. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Colossians. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-KHOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word. 